Welcome right, well. to Wrench Life. <laughs> I mean, you probably keep finishing your text. I like to do funny. the intro. All right. Oops. Welcome to Wrench Life with a Y. Because there's nothing as valuable as feeling good. Should check the mic levels, whatever. Um, yeah, this Testing. is... This is episode four. Oh. Which is, um, if you're keeping track, the fourth episode... We're going to take a step back. Last week we did the uh, our first mom, Mind Over Matter. Uh, today we're going to switch gears into the, uh, one of the other categories, which was um, food for thought, although this will touch a little bit on uh, the broad, the global uh, scale of diet and food in general, right? So at the Mom Podcast, we're going to kind of lay out some foundations of basic, like a couple different psychological theories before we later on go into very specifics. Same thing with food. Before we go into very specifics, we have to kind of lay a groundwork, you know, to go off of. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All right, good. All right. So today we are actually going to talk about, where is it? Oh, jeez. Hold on. Oh, jeez. Eat some time up. Um... Well, I deadlifted a lot today. <laughs> Everything hurts. Um, no one really wants to listen to me. I don't know why I'm talking. Oh, good, he's back. <laughs> I could pause, but I could just leave that in there and make you sound... Actually, I don't think it makes you sound bad. I think it just makes me sound better. <laughs> Not actually audibly sound better, just... Anyway, moving along. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about this book. If you're on YouTube, you can see me holding up the book. If you're on the podcast form, you can hear my hands holding the book. Some this ASMR is ASMR stuff Michael... right there. What? ASMR stuff. So that's that stuff I keep telling you to do. ASMR? It, ASMR. You know the videos of people like... Where they do oh, that. And they have millions of views on YouTube and make a ton of money. So if this doesn't work out, use these mics for that. Okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about... <laughs> The Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael Pollan's book. Fantastic book. Everyone should read this book. It's about the Omnivore's Dilemma. On the cover here, we have some grapes, an egg. Looks like a big chunk of bone. Was like a femur, cow femur, maybe? Uh, yeah, that's a shank. A shank? That's, a, that, that's like a marrow bone. Yeah, because bone marrow is good. And then mm-hmm. there's a mushroom on there. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully some of you have actually heard of Michael Pollan. Maybe you've read some of Michael Pollan's books. They're fantastic so today we're gonna I'll give you a little outline we're gonna go over the basic uh, info in the background uh of michael pollan we're gonna outline the book uh then we're gonna do our mindful moments then we're gonna break down the four sections of the book then i'll touch on the follow-up book briefly and then uh just a little bit of uh michael pollan's advice he's got this slogan we're gonna we've talked about it before but we're gonna we'll close with that all right you right? You good? You on, yeah, please? sounds like a great, great outline. Good plan. Yeah, I outlined it this morning. Good stuff. This, this one's a little easier because I've read this book like three times, so I, I didn't have. To, I just kind of like fact checked myself a little bit and double checked some stuff, so it wasn't as hard as the Freud one we're gonna get into later. I've definitely opened that book three times. Oh wow! Yeah, I've I read, read it. I've read like a chapter or two. I've, I've been uh, trying to listen to it audio on book. audiobook. Yeah. Yeah. You gave I, me that. Yeah, I like to uh, read a book and then listen to it later. I feel like you absorb it a little bit differently. Especially a book as dense as that. It's not that dense. Well, for me, for someone as stupid as I am. I think one of the great things about this book is that it isn't that dense. 
Uh, whatever. Yeah, that one's an easier read, right? Doesn't he have one that's a little more? Gets the follow-up book, yeah, this we'll okay. talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, in defense of food. Uh, the, the reason I think this book is so great is because it's not hard to read, and it's not uh, it's not advice at all. It's not mm-hmm. like a diet book. It doesn't tell you really anything of what you should do. It just lays out kind of the story. Uh, as the title says, Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. Right? Simple enough. Right, so it, it kind of gives you... It'll basically help someone, like we talked about the ideology, philosophy thing. Y'all have your idea, dietary ideologies. This book helps you look at the history of a, a plate, a food of, a plate, plate of food, food yeah. to go from the ground to your plate. And it never doesn't mention anything about any diets or fads or anything like that. So you can look at it without like going into it being like if you didn't eat meat in the books. It's like you know. Well, actually, there's a bone on the cover. But if, it, if it had any indication that countered your particular food ideology, you'd be apprehensive to read it because people are scared of the opposing opinion because there's probably some truth in it. Whew, roasted. <laughs> uh, so, briefly on Michael Pollan. I obsessed about Michael Pollan. So I, I, like, I like, at one point, watched basically everything there was on YouTube with him in it. Mm-hmm. And I found that was really helpful for me because then when I was reading, I could hear him saying it. Because he actually writes very similar to the way he speaks. Not mm-hmm. all writers are like that. It's a really calm speaker. You can really take in a lot of information. He's a great he, speaker. It's great. When he was on Rogan, it was pretty awesome. It just yeah. really... He's on, was he on, no, he was... Well, no, I Wasn't he on? Yeah, he was on Rogan for the other book. The other book, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because when I kind of got into Rogan, I would like use Rogan as um, a, a way to find people and I'd go down their wormhole. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like... He kind of does what like I'm trying to do with 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 like three particular realms. He does it with like the whole world because he's a maniac. Mm-hmm. And I I wondered I like looked it up multiple times like how has Michael Pollan never been on Rogan? Yeah. Well, it just took a while. It had, it had to be about psychedelics. Yeah. <laughs> For Rogan to be like oh mushrooms. mushrooms. <laughs> okay, so Pollan, was born in '55, so he's kind of old. He's, um, this is according to the Wikipedia. He's an American. Author, journalist, activist, and the Lewis K. Chan art lecturer and professor of practice nonfiction wow. at Harvard. Ooh. Yeah. He is also a professor of journalism at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Right? Uh, a lot of people think he's a, quote, food writer. Mm-hmm. He always says, uh, and I agree with what he says, is that that, that is not accurate. Pollan says he writes about our connection to the natural world. Fair. And and the, the more recent book kind of outlines that. And the older books that people don't know actually point that out. Pollan also taught a course uh, at Berkeley called Edible Education. You can actually find it on YouTube. Hmm. He did it for two semesters, and then other people did it in subsequent semesters. I've watched three of the semesters. The two he did, the one he didn't. Part That book is that, that semester is really based on this book. He brings in people that he talks about in the book. To, oh, really? So, like, he's not actually teaching a lot of the seminars. So, maybe there's 12 classes. He probably teaches, like, seven of them, mm-hmm. and he brings in people. Joel Salatin comes in and everything. There's one of those I, I, I'll link in the, um, the description. <clears throat> it's uh, Edible Education 101, Food as Culture by Dr. Peter Sellers. This is a really great lecture. This guy's from theater. He's really animated, kind mm-hmm. of flamboyant, you know. And he talks about food... He kind of talks about, like, if food had karma in it. Hmm. 
about you know being conscious of your food food choices. And since he's like in theater, th- theater, theater. I was gonna say I was thinking theatrics and theater. Yeah. Since he's from theater and he's kind of flamboyant, he's really he kind of exaggerates it and he yeah. and he makes it seem kind of romantic. And he's talking about how if you're eating organic strawberries. You know, the migrant worker who gets paid little to nothing is suffering for her work and the pesticides are affecting her and her children. And he's like, he's like, that sweetness you taste, that's suffering. He's like, Ooh. you're tasting the pesticides that are causing her birth defects. Wow. You know, but, and I like that he drives it home so hard because th- that, that is completely true. People think of food, they think of the cost of food in only dollar signs. Yeah. The cost of food is, is immense and it's something that you should take into consideration before you start to articulate some sort of ideology, yeah. right? We talk about that with the, the suffering involved in, you know, meat eating versus not meat eating and, you know. There's, no, there's, no, there's no free lunch. There's no cruelty-free. There's no... Uh, I mean, if you're just in the woods and you just picked something up, made it up, made it, maybe. Sure, you could argue something against that but well, it, wouldn't have, saying, it wouldn't have much uh, weight to stand on. i'm thinking that <laughs> the context of that reference would be if you're buying lunch like yeah. if you're going somewhere to get it there's no cool tv yeah that's not the same you're, yeah yeah okay yeah i'll i will link to that video in the description it's really great i once made that made people listen to it so <clears throat> so apollo was born in uh the, the congested long island and then he moved into a more, um, not rural, but a scenic part of Connecticut. I know this because I read about it in his books. But that plays a role in, in his view and everything. He got his B.A. at Bennington College in 77. Damn. Yeah, he's got his M.A. in English from Columbia. You know, in, he's got a show 81. on Netflix too, right? Yeah. It's, it's, in, it's in the outline. Oh, it's in the outline? <laughs> that's, you know, he's pretty accredited, you know, <clears throat> Harvard, you went to Columbia. Like, that's pretty legit. That's which is also funny is that um, just that is pretty. Immense. Thomas Sowell, this guy, he actually just this year really released an updated version of discrimination disparities. Hmm. He went to Harvard, and he said the greatest benefit of going to Harvard was never had to. Well, he said, I forget how he phrased it. Like is never having to be impressed when someone else says I went to Harvard, because it's <laughs> it's such like a pinnacle thing. Like, oh, I went to Harvard, so he's like, well, now I don't care if you went because I did too. <laughs> That's so good, right? <laughs> And that falls in the line of what, what they would call the theory of credentialism in America right now in the colleges. But, but That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not really for this forum either. All right, so Pollen's books, he's written um, A Place of My Own in 1998, and that was about him building a small shed, so it was like an amateur architect. It was released under two different, like in main title and then like sublime, but uh, it's pretty cool. I never read that one because I didn't really care so much about the architecture, but I, I would imagine he goes into the psychology of, of a home exactly what mm-hmm. makes a home and all that stuff and i know about the shed because in the later book uh the psychedelics book he he's in that shed from that first book when he's having one of his experiences uh his second book is called second nature it's uh, a gardener's education he wrote that in 91 i've read most of that i got caught up in the middle that's a great book it's about the same thing psychology and sociology and the philosophy of the front yard and the mm-hmm. garden and how we have this nature is wild and we're constantly trying to control it. So it's got this really cool thing going on in there. Uh, the book after that is The Botany of Desire, 2001. That one's great. I've read that twice. Same thing. It's about plant coevolution. It goes mm-hmm. over the it's um, beauty. No. Sweetness, beauty, intoxicant, staple. So he talks about apples, tulips, 
marijuana potato. Hmm. And each one of those plants has, a, has a, a, a history with humans that is so much more interesting than you could ever imagine. I had no idea apples were so freaking cool. Mm-hmm. Apples are insanely cool. Is it in that? Maybe I'm mixing this up with someone else, but doesn't he argue that that maybe the plants are changing humans as yeah, much yeah, as humans yeah, are exactly, changing yeah, plants? Yeah. Where like we have such a symbiotic relationship that mm-hmm. you know the corn actually shaped us almost as and it's yeah. and it's reacting in a way that like um, makes us do different things to the corn yeah. that's beneficial for well, the corn. The plants, you know, the plants super goal. Yeah, is, is to, to is to spread its seed, and, yeah. and most plants will use a way of a, a a host animal to get the animal to spread the seed. We we corn won. Yeah, corn, corn won. <laughs> corn corn really and soy it. really took over America. And like we like they you know the plants gonna jet, mutate here and there, and there's certain things you could see, and people selectively breed, and that's technically a form of GMO. And then we, we took that and like ramped it into overdrive and, and we think we, we won corn, but corn's looking at us going, nah, <laughs> we won you. <laughs> you are corn. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're going to talk about corn shortly. After the Botany of Desire, which is a great book, we got into this book right here. We're going to talk about the uh, Omnivore's Dilemma 2006. It was actually New York Times top 10 books of 2006. That's pretty prestigious. The follow-up book, In Defense of Food, in Eater's Manifesto. That's 2008. That was also a New York Times bestseller. That's the dense one. Hmm. Then there's the food rules book we read from at the end of every podcast. That's just really straightforward. It's kind of just like... It's food rules. Food rules is a great place to start if you if you think you're incapable of reading because... That's probably what I'm going to do when I get home. Yeah, I, gotta... I like bought that and read it in a sitting and it's yeah. not... I can't read, so... Um, after that, he wrote Cooked. I think you've read that one. A Natural History of Transformation. He wrote that in 2013. I didn't read it. Oh. I, I keep, I, I mm-hmm. pretend like I read stuff and I have mm-hmm. great ambitions of reading, but mm-hmm. then I, I don't. Mm. I have a, well, I, I wouldn't read into that too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cooked <laughs> is about the four cooking processes. Can you name them, Blaze? The four cooking processes? Yeah. Like the different, uh, oh, what is it like? It's like. It's salt. more elemental than anything. Yeah, it, it's like uh, fire, water. Air. Isn't, it just, isn't it just the elements? Essentially. Yeah. Oh. Fire, water, air. Earth. Earth, yeah. Yeah, essentially. So you cook with direct flame. Yeah. Uh, baking in enclosure. Cook The air gets so hot it cooks it from internally. That's why you get all the air pockets and everything. Um, boiling. Cooking with water would be, you know, that, that was a big one for people because it enabled them to take the unusable parts of the animal and make things like bone broth, which is mm-hmm. one of the most nutrient-dense things you can get from the animal, which is yeah. great. And then fermentation is cooking with earth. Oh, okay. In, the, in that yeah. book, he argues that we're not the only animals that cook because squirrels and other animals will bury their food. Ants and bees ferment things. Oh, yeah. There's like whole, they build whole chambers that are like vented so they don't blow up. Like, it's so crazy how, oh. how ants work. <laughs> yeah, ants are like really, really. Like leafcutter ants, they take all that, the leaves and they there's like a little chamber where they do fermentation and it's like vented up to the atmosphere. So, you you know, you. That's crazy. Yeah. We should get an ant on the show. Yeah. My aunt's going to be here in July, I think. Yeah. She's not an aunt, though. Um, also, Cooked, there, someone you, some people might recognize Cooked because there's a four-part Netflix series called Cooked. Um, Pollen was also in, what was the documentary? Food, Inc., I think. He was in Food, Inc. Mm-hmm. I think he might have been in King Corn, which is another great documentary. That's the one where they get the, the, plot of, the plot of land and try and figure out how to make, like, an acre of corn. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, the sub-narrative to make it more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so Cooked was 2013, and then last year, or actually, yeah, last year in 2018, he wrote the book over here, How to Change Your Mind, about um, the history of psychedelic research and the reemergence of psychedelic research. Some really good stuff there. So we're going to move on. I want to give you a kind of a little, kind of like an outline of the general theme throughout the book, then we'll take our moments break, then we'll jump back into the, the, the four sections of the book, all right? Great. So the Omnivore's Dilemma, a natural history of four meals, all right? Basically, it's going to give, kind of give us an outline of what, uh, you know, what, are, you know, what and why we're omnivores, you know? And we'll talk about what every meal in this book has in common, because it's a history of four meals. And then I'll actually tell you what the four meals are. That will be our, That's just in this little outline, right? So we're omnivores. Obviously, what, what does that mean? You eat everything. Basically. Yeah. Omnivores mean we eat a wide variety of food. The opposite of that would be a specialized eater, which you can imagine eats a specific or specialized diet. Herbivore. Carnivore. Gen generally, yeah, and it, it gets even more specific. Oh. Um, some animals, like uh, he uses the example of koala bears and eucalyptus, I think it is. That they Sorry. literally only eat that, period. Like, yeah. if it's that, it's if it smells like that, looks like that, you eat it. Otherwise, you don't touch it. Yeah. In those species, like, you know, their gut enzyme, their enzymes and their gut microbiome have all co-evolved to digest that very specific food source that, like, literally can't work anywhere else, right? Mm -hmm. We've evolved to have, have a diverse gut uh, microbiome. That's why simplified diets generally uh, are not good for you. Uh, some people would argue that our omnivorous diet has made us uh, who we are as a species, and it, it, it's undeniable that it played a role. I mean, if you could eat anything, you're, you're going to eat basically everything. Mm -hmm. You know, in some senses, this will increase your species survival rate because you're less at a risk of a food shortage, uh, but, you know, you're also at a risk of, like, I don't know, poisoning yourself, perhaps, <laughs> eating something that makes you sick. Or cooking out the poisons of things. You know, there's security in that. But there's also security in being a specialized eater because it, your food source is pretty much there. You know, if you were to, if you if we were early omnivores, you know, evolving, uh, and we ate something that made you sick, or you tried to eat something that in fact wasn't even edible, what is that going to hopefully require you to do? Not do that again. Yes, exactly. You need <laughs> a memory, right? You and not only to remember it, you need the ability to think. And you also need the ability to share that information. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're so social possibly plays a big role in, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I just got to duck. God damn it, I swear. Asked me about my fantasy draft yesterday. I used an obscure th I, like, kind of overthought it and did some weird thing. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So the fact that we had to evolve to, uh, you know, be social and everything played a big role in possibly the development of our brain, you know? <clears throat> I don't remember who, somebody on Rogan talks about it where it's like uh, the, our species, or the knowledge of our own species, like our collective knowledge mm -hmm. of species. So like as a person, you just, you know, you just don't eat certain things like, yeah, what, like, you know, just go up and eat poison ivy because, you know, yeah. someone... 100,000 years ago probably did it, and yeah. it's like, not so great. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. You know, it's like, you, you've been told, like, your whole life that you shouldn't really mess with mushrooms, you mm -hmm. know, especially not wild ones, you know. 
But there is something when you see a crazy mushroom in the wild, you're like, that's pretty like, tasty. It's like, no. Well, maybe <laughs> you, because you work in the kitchen. <laughs> I see mushrooms. I'm like, what the hell is that? I would never try to eat that thing, yeah. you know? Nature has a way of letting you know those things. Like, there's sign poisonous snakes. You could identify them because mm-hmm. they look aggressive. Fat and uh, bitter things are generally poisonous. Oh, yeah. Um, women generally don't, generally don't like bitter things because it, they're generally not. Is that why they don't sick. like me? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um yeah, so like it's it's like a defense mechanism for their children. Like they don't want to eat bitter mm. things because it's usually poisonous or not mm. good. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I threw this little one-liner in here. You know, we share we share the great diet of play. You know, you get to play with it, right? Mm. And we we share it with elite company like rats, opossums, <laughs> raccoons, bears, chickens, pigs. There's actually a lot of them, a lot more than I thought, and there's actually a ton of uh, omnivorous birds. Mm. Yeah. So, moving along, we're going to go on to the one thing that all meals, all food, and all life, for that matter, has in common. You want to take a guess? Water? No? Oh, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> well, even more so than water. Air? Sun. Oh. And at the basis of all food is photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. That's a a tough one without my teeth in. (laughs) It all comes from the sun. Can you you think of something that doesn't? Something in the very deep part of the ocean, but they still get sunlight somehow? Nice. No, they don't. They don't? Well, Well, there's some stuff that, there's some like algaes that exist in total like darkness and mm. that's pretty much it i think yeah they're uh that's really good i nailed it please uh <laughs> there's like those crazy little ecosystems in the deep ocean that live around the vents the hypo like uh, uh thermo thermo what's the term geothermal, geothermal vents? Yeah. yeah but i guess even then it's sort of light related to the universe yeah. and whatever but you know the, the, the sun's a big deal like the sun's crazy have you ever looked at the sun it's so bright it hurts well, it's we crazy. haven't in a while because Rochester. No, but... oh, it was sunny this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I swear it's always sunny at like seven fifteen when the light shines right through my window on my face. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the sun's crazy. People, we, every society's known the sun is the source of everything. And uh, I've actually went out, gave you a little little fun facts for the podcast. The I'll give you a list of some s- notable sun gods. Hmm. The Buddhists called the sun god Sura. Sura. The Egyptian hey, called it Sarah. Ra, the sun god. The uh-huh. Egyptians Ra, like Father. Ah. The Greek god. You know the Greek god of the sun? No. Oh come on! It's Apollo. Really? It doesn't make sense why a moon mission would be called Apollo anyway. But hmm. good one, NASA. Yeah. Probably not uh, enough funding. There. The Romans called their Greek god Sol. Hmm. Uh, the Mayans called it. All right. All right. Kinich a jaw. Nailed it. Kenichi? I think it's Kenichi Jaw. Kenichi 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 Wa. And the Hopi Indians called it Tawa. Tawa. So hey, you could how say are you? Hey, how are you? <laughs> you could say that all life is solar powered, right? You could say mm-hmm. that. Even our fossil fuels were technically solar powered. Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Exactly. <laughs> um Pollen points this out and it it really drives home the fact that he writes about our link to nature and not just food specifically, right? 
Mm-hmm. Pollen also suggests in this book and in, in the subsequent book that uh, there should be a, a caloric count for, for like sun calories hmm. or fossil fuel consumption used in the production of processing the food as well as, um, you know, the, your caloric count. Basically thinking there's like a golden ratio or there should be some ratio to aim for between the energy it takes to get the food to your plate and the energy it gives you. You know, mm-hmm. there are foods that give you nothing that are, you know, super expensive to produce. They get shipped, they get flown across the world, blah, 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 whatever. You know, like there's a, that's one of those things we talked about the cost of food. Just for you to throw it out, I shoot mold in your fridge. Yeah. It's sad. There's some great, I think it was like some stupid Facebook video where they show like the life cycle of somebody picking a, picking a basket of strawberries. They pick, the, you know, someone's picking the basket. It goes, it gets washed. It gets put into a. The container it gets packaged it gets labeled it gets shipped it gets in put into inventory at a grocery store it gets put on the shelf someone comes in they come in and buy it it gets scanned it gets bought they put it in their fridge it rots and <laughs> then they throw it in the trash and it's like oh and that's like food waste and i've been a huge culprit of that lately and i hate myself every time i do it that i buy something just to end up throwing out because i think about that whole process of how it got to my fridge and then my trash can Mm. but it's like a huge there's some scary number like we could end world hunger if we just didn't throw out all of our food every um, week in america made a big push on that like yeah it's it's straight up illegal yeah it's yeah yeah Yeah. well they they're all about food over there that's where that's where cooking really i wish americans cared for food more than just shoveling it into their face as fast as possible and make sure it costs make sure it's on the dollar menu yeah that's oh. one of those things, uh, just to step back there, I said the other day the difference between um, capitalism <coughs> and uh, corporatism. You know, capitalism, it, it drives you to the point where we can get you all this food and it's accessible. Corporatism is when it goes too far and they're like, okay, it's like, we're just going to pick it before it's ripe and let it sit on the shelf. And then, you know, essentially three quarters of it can go bad and not get purchased as long as we move that aspect of it you know like at a certain point it goes too far well there's no there's no seasons in grocery stores i think that's a direct quote from one of the books is yeah, yeah. There, you should be eating with the seasons there's no reason to eat a peach right now mm. it's not that hasn't been grown anywhere near you it's it's you know chemicals are used to i like the like, peach emoji it's a good one that music video last night was sweet <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe i'd never seen that before oh my god yeah <laughs> um yeah, he mentions in is either that one or cooked. He talks about how recipes used to call for spring eggs because the the yolks mm-hmm. are actually different based on the the chicken's diet. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole there. I think that was in a chef's table thing or some overproduced food show on Netflix. But there's restaurants that feed their chickens certain things to color their eggs a certain mm, way yeah. to make their pasta look different. Like it's pretty cool. That's great. Um, <sighs> Yeah. Cool. Well, so in the Wars Dilemma, like, pollen touches on everything, like food processing, farming, a little bit of the politics, like like little, literally everything. Yeah. The, his writing style in his books will jump between like the facts of the matter, the like the political aspects of the matter, the social implications of the matter, the psychology of eating, and like a little bit of philosophy, and like he kind of like goes through these different lenses, so to speak, and it's. He never goes on one for too long. Like, it's never like he just goes into rambling into the politics of it to the point where you're like, 
All right, dude. Yeah. Like it's just like it gets concise and to the point. Yeah, like so uh, some of the things he'll, he'll touch on, like he'll give specifics that are really important. Like he narrows down the change in the American diet almost to a specific KFC ad. Hmm. Uh, he you know breaks it down to the policy of uh, Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts. That was under Nixon. You know, he said, get big or get out. Earl Butts. Earl Butts. What a name for a secretary of, what was it? Agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like the turn when monoculture farming kind of took over. He he basically, Pollen will seamlessly go between these different lenses in a way where it's just like, it feels like a conversation with someone that kind of knows what they're talking about. It seems like he switches between those modes in a way that holds your entertainment really well. It's, I love his writing. He's like an omnivore, but talking. Yes. Whatever the word we know. Like the, the book itself that would be. is it's high resolution in, in the way he goes from the sunlight to the dirt to your dinner pl- plate. Mm-hmm. But it's like kind of like medium to low resolution on the specifics. Like it, it's not made for you to go crazy about the specifics. It's about the meal. Yeah. Uh, but that what we said earlier, that prompted his follow-up book, Cooked. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a little bit at the end, really. Because after that book, everyone's like, well, what should we do? What should we do? Mm-hmm. And they're like, he's like, I guess I'll write the book. <laughs> yeah, so the sections of the book are industrial corn, mm-hmm. pastoral grass, personal forest. Now, you might say to yourself, Wait a minute. Didn't Dave say there was four sections in the book, and I just told you three? I can't count. But I yes. had that thought this morning because <laughs> the book, the, the title actually says "A Natural History of Four Meals," and I'm outlining it, and I'm like, "All right, so let me just get the chapters right." Corn, grass, forest. I was like, "Wait, what?" And I was, like, so confused for a second. I had to, like, kind of piece it back together. Uh, but basically, there's four sections. Uh, well, there's four meals. The middle section was supposed to be one meal, but it ended, got, it ended up getting split into two meals. Because mm. uh, organic, although it is a lot better than conventional, is might not be what you think. Right? So the four meals in the book are a Western industrial diet, industrial organic, sustainably farmed, and then a hunter-gatherer, homemade type mm. thing. Right? So we're going to take a break here. We're going to our, uh, our moments, mindful moments. You know, moments. we practice mindfulness here. So we try to be mindful of our good moments and our bad moments and, and to not put them out of sight, put them out of, mind, out of sight, out of mind. Don't do that. Think about it. Be happy for what you got. What do you got for me, Blaze, this week? Uh, Which button am I pressing on the magic board? Oh, uh, I've been watching a lot of anxious moments at work. You've you can been go watching it. Yeah, oh, I haven't. Right. I haven't had too many. You ever had those anxious moments? Room is spinning. I love that song. It's like poetry. Like poetry is beautiful. So what's going on at work? Uh, well, it's um, not the busiest restaurant, which mm-hmm. is fine. Um, I'm I'm just used to a much busier, higher, uh, higher paced environment, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think everybody else is. So when oh. sh- when uh, when it hits the fan, 
people get a little freaked out and it's been kind of funny for me to watch because um ultimately like if you do everything right at the lowest level when it gets to that higher point and everything gets crazy it's kitchens are controlled chaos so if you rely on your standards and practices then when it gets busy it's just the same thing but faster yeah that's how it should be but it's not mistake i mean mistakes happen and i think it's a new season and a different crew in there so they're kind of working the kinks out but Hmm. i see people you know orders coming in and people start to freak out and things aren't getting delegated as well as it should be and i'm just like man this is that's not so bad (laughs) you know i i'm used to like you know not to bash anybody it's just like facts about busyness of restaurants the restaurant i used to work at is three times the size that i work at now so it's like we do all the covers now when you say size is that like square footage seating ability like meals per menu on the menu yes 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 it's it's fizz the restaurant is physically smaller staff smaller smaller or probably same size menu because all restaurants should have a smaller menu any restaurant that has like they hand you a book you should leave it's they can't do that many things um and it's just lower volume like no one does what 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 good luck does in in town there's no one that does that many people it's it's, 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 it's absurd yeah and so that volume and speed and quality is just like unmatched like it so it's it's an adjustment <laughs> what's the term that they use at the restaurant like cats tops like this uh, like covers covers do you know what that originates from no um so in france where fine dining or whatever they used to have um cluches they're called Kloosh. Kloosh. Yeah, so you pull, I think that's the term. Kloosh? Like that Kloosh. Fuzzy ball thing from the 90s? No, no, Kloosh with an L. Oh, Kloosh okay. with an L. I think. Um, Kloosh. So you, you would pull that off and that would be the covers. That's Each cover is uh, a person at a table, so you okay. bring the food out. And so I just say people. It doesn't sound as good. Covers okay. sounds cool. Especially well, how good, many covers you do. Well, also, good luck. You have the shared meals thing, so so yours might not be as accurate to person as other restaurants. Maybe. Exactly, okay. and that's 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 another thing is that makes good luck able to put out that much food. Is at a normal restaurant like uh, say next door, hmm. they you you go in you order, the food is is meant to be coursed out. So you come in and you order, and each person gets uh, you know an app an app, an entree, and a dessert or whatever, and you order the appetizer and an entree, and the the kitchen gets the whole order for the whole table, and every person has to get their food at the same time, mm, yeah. so you have to time everything. At Good yeah. Luck, it's different because you just... It comes out, it comes out. Yeah, it's like, all right, he wants a burger, he wants a chicken, we're going to share it, so they come out at different times. Hmm. And people don't think about the logistics of that. So if you're with five people and somebody orders a well-done burger... That takes longer to cook than a medium burger. So you're waiting on that dude. By how much? Four minutes. Uh, good luck. You're looking at ten minutes at least. Because things so big. Yeah. So a, a, a well done good luck burger takes at least 15 minutes to cook. Wow. If you're nice to it. If you're not nice to it, you smush it down. And like sometimes it has to happen. But generally people that hmm. order well done aren't going to notice either way. Yeah, of course not. Because that's a... <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that. But to be fair, it's, it's. I'd rather you had an Android than had your your beef your beef beef cooked well. Yeah, it's not good. Sorry, it's how mad it makes me. Yeah, <laughs> that that with the ribeyes too. The ribeyes are two pounds and you know an inch thick, so those take same at least an hour. You know, damn. And if anything over mid rare is gonna take you forty minutes. Wow. So there's a restaurant synopsis there. 
You got yeah. any beautiful, angst, anxious, well, or angry moments? Well, I got moments? nothing for angsty. Um, I don't even have any for angry. I've just been, like, super busy or anything. I do have a beautiful moment. You know what you're saying? We know that. We love that. It's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony Pastoral. Oh, I actually have a good, I have a good, um, not angry, but a good, I can't call it a beautiful moment. Actually, yeah, I got a beautiful moment. There we go. I found a one. Mine is like, um, it's not really a beautiful moment, but it's something beautiful for the share. Yeah, so my, my beautiful moment isn't really a beautiful moment. It's more like a beautiful thing or whatever, which isn't really... I really want the moments to be really be focused on, like, very specific moments in mindfulness, you know? Mm. So this doesn't fit with that. But I'm going to try to be better with it. Uh, my beautiful thing is just that tonight's the two-year anniversary of Ladies' Night at the Skate Park, which is pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. I'll um, be there later. You know, it's a complex thing, and it, it generally it's awesome. And it's just great bringing more people into the sport. Yeah. Uh, there's been a big turnover. Not a turnover. There's been a, uh, there's definitely been a change in ridership. I have a lot of girls coming to the skate park, which is really cool to see that they're not, you know, scared of the environment and everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it, that's pretty great. It's been cool to, like, when I was hanging out at the park during the week more often, and there was just, like, just, there's just girls there just having fun. Like, it's not, like, a, yeah. not stigmatized or weird. It's yeah, it's awesome. Cool. Back in our day, if there was girls hanging out at the skate park, there were ramp tramps. Yeah. Now they're just girls. I'm, they're just shredders. Yeah. That's great. But, um, yeah, I got nothing angry. You said you had something for me? Well, so, Friday our dishwasher quit, which, in a, in a new move I've never seen before. He came in, he clocked in, he went on time. He came in on time, clocked in, went downstairs, he grabbed his shoes, I think he was on the fence when he came in. Like, yeah, if there's dishes, I'm just I'm just gonna leave. If there's if there's stuff yeah. to do, I'm I'm just gonna do it. So he saw the dish pit, he grabbed his shoes, he put them in a bag, and he and he walked out. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've never seen anybody show up on time to quit. quit. <laughs> wow! And really cordial about it. And I was like, he's like, where's where's Tim going? And he's like, oh, he's talking to the manager. Yeah. Oh, she looks. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. He she's on the phone. Yeah, he quit. He's he's not coming back. Yeah. So. The beautiful moment in that is, um, you know, oh, yeah. obvious, obvious. Yeah, where's the beautiful moment in so, this? <laughs> well, I, again, everyone's all freaking out, and it's, I thought it was funny. Like, I, whatever. Um, the beautiful moment in that is generally um, the front of the house doesn't help the back of the house. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're a lot of the people who do that are just, they're there to make the crazy amount of money you can make being a server or bartender, and then they leave. It's fine. Um, so I was in the dish pit cleaning and picking up the slack of the person quitting and they're like, oh, you know, uh, they were, they were saying like, oh, what are we going to do dishes now? And in my head, I'm thinking, what are they complaining? Like they're going to help me? Like no one's going to help me. Yeah. And I'm really glad I kept that in because lo and behold, one of the servers came back and they started organizing the dish pit like correctly, like putting it all in the right spot oh, awesome. and helping me out. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Everyone's like really rallying together for this that's oh. glad i didn't say anything mean <laughs> so it makes you look good being the new guy jumping in the dish pit yeah, i mean in the pit there's uh there's no way to avoid washing dishes if anything whenever a dishwasher would quit at good luck i'd be like somebody please let me go back there it's so much easier than my normal job yeah that's hilarious i'll do that all day <laughs> somebody work pasta i don't care i'll i'll wash dishes all week so uh, that's my beautiful moment okay 
Yeah, I've been so busy, it's been hard to have beautiful moments. Uh, all right, we're going to jump back in on the book, uh, and I have a treat for you. Oh. <laughs> There's this great passage in the first section of the book, which if you remember, the sections were... Oh, uh, which book? This book? Yeah, the book, this book. <laughs> but you don't remember? No, man, I hit my head. Industrial, pastoral, forest. I'm not going to go with those. I'm, I like to outline the book in terms of um, what the meal was. Mm. But the first, the first chapter is corn. <laughs> it's like, we are corn. Everything is corn. That, that's basically the, how the book opens up. Uh, and I'm actually going to bring in a... a some audio here of Pollen reading this passage. This is a great passage in the book. He reads it all the time in lectures about how everything is corn. And it's like, oh, yeah. I thought I would read it, but why not have Pollen himself read it? Uh, so I have it queued up here. So I'm going to jump right in. We're going to hear Michael Pollan talk about corn from the first chapter of his book. McDonald's. And I'm going to read a brief passage um, about that first quest and where I ended up. And because so this was great. the first big surprise of the book for me, and you probably know the, the, the punchline here, but um, I want to read you just a few paragraphs. Um, when I started trying to follow the industrial food chain, the one that now feeds most of us most of the time and typically culminates either in a supermarket or a fast food meal, I expected that my investigations would lead me to a wide variety of places. And though my journeys did take me to a great many states and covered a great many miles, at the end of these food chains, which is to say, at the very beginning, I invariably found myself in almost exactly the same place, a farm field in the American Corn Belt. The great edifice of variety and choice that is an American supermarket turns out to rest on a remarkably narrow biological foundation comprised of a tiny group of plants that is dominated by a single species, Zia maize, the giant tropical grass known to most Americans as corn. Corn is what feeds the steer that becomes the steak. Corn feeds the chicken and the pig, the turkey and the lamb, the catfish and the tilapia, and increasingly even the salmon, a carnivore by nature that the fish farmers are re-engineering to tolerate corn. The eggs are made of corn, the milk and cheese and yogurt, which once came from dairy cows that grazed on grass, now typically come from Holsteins that spend their working lives mostly indoors, tethered to machines, eating corn. Head over to the processed foods and you find even more intricate manifestations of corn. A chicken nugget, for example, piles corn upon corn. What chicken it contains consists of corn, of course, but so do most of a nugget's other constituents, including the modified cornstarch that glues the thing together, the corn flour in the batter that coats it, and the corn oil in which it gets fried. Much less obviously, the leavenings and lecithin, the mono dye and triglycerides, the attractive golden coloring, and even the citric acid that keeps the nugget fresh can all be derived from corn. To wash down your chicken nugget with virtually any soft drink in the supermarket is to have some corn with your corn. <laughs> Since the 1980s, virtually all the sodas and most of the fruit drinks sold in the supermarket have been sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. After water, corn sweetener is their principal ingredient. Grab a beer for your beverage instead and you'd still be drinking corn in the form of alcohol fermented from glucose refined from corn. Read the ingredients on the label of any processed food and provided you know the chemical names it travels under, corn is what you will find. For modified or unmodified starch, for glucose syrup and maltodextrin, for crystalline fructose and ascorbic acid, for lecithin and dextrose, lactic acid and lysine, for maltose and HFCS, for MSG and polyols, for the caramel color and xanthan gum, read corn. 
Corn is in the coffee whitener and cheese whiz, the frozen yogurt and TV dinner, the canned fruit and ketchup and candies, the soups and snacks and cake mixes, the frostings and gravies and frozen waffles, the syrups and hot sauces, the mayonnaise and mustard, the hot dogs and the bologna, the margarine and the shortening, the salad dressings and the relishes, and even the vitamins. And yes, it's even in the Twinkie too. There are some 45, now 47,000 items in the average American supermarket, and more than half of them now contain corn. This goes for the non-food items as well, everything from the toothpaste and cosmetics to the disposable diapers, trash bags, cleansers, charcoal briquettes, matches and batteries, right down to the shine on the cover of the magazine that catches your eye by the checkout, corn. Even in produce, on a day when there's ostensibly no corn for sale, you'll nevertheless find plenty of corn. In the vegetable wax that gives the cucumbers their sheen, in the pesticide responsible for the produce's perfection, even in the coating on the cardboard it was shipped in. Indeed, the supermarket itself, the wallboard and joint compounds, the linoleum and fiberglass and adhesives out of which the building itself has been built is in no small measure a manifestation of corn. And yeah, oh, that God. is freaking amazing, dude. <sighs> you can tell he's read it a few times. His delivery is just like it's awesome. so good. <laughs> yeah, it's really just something. He actually goes on later in the book. Uh, he has some, like a, I think a mass spectrometer. His a colleague of his at Berkeley in the in uh, what, what was that? Biology, chemistry, science, physics. There you go. There you go. They can actually carbon like the isotope build. Uh, comp, iso, there's some sort of isotope profile in the carbon of corn that's trackable. Mm -hmm. So they actually did did a bunch of tests and um, it was like. They could tell you how much of your human, how much a human being is made of corn based on how much corn you eat. Wow. Yeah, and they did like, uh, what did they do? A couple of things. Like the, uh, God, they tested a bunch of stuff. Like the, they did like a Big Mac was like something like 40% corn. Like the bun itself was like 40% corn. Hmm. The French fries were like half corn. Half corn. Something well, I mean, else. They're saturated in so much oil. Yeah. There's yeah. not much left in there. Basically, yeah. that's what you're doing when you make fries. Something else in the menu was like 90% corn. It's crazy. Was that the milkshake or something was crazy Maybe. amount of corn? Oh, it was, yeah, it was soda. Soda is like 99% or 97% corn product. Oh, my God. Yeah, so th this section of the book is really long and complex because the processing of food is long and complex. He actually, he does praise the uh, industrial... Um, I was about to say that because there's almost no waste, right? Yeah, it's yeah. almost like every bit of corn is used yeah, yeah. in some fashion it's like the, he praises the efficiency is yeah what i was trying to say he, he can't get any he says in the book he can't get any corn syrup or corn processing company to let him in to see it they won't let him in they don't let journalists in which is kind of suspect but he went to a college somewhere in the midwest i think where they have a corn syrup they have a small operation that does the same thing for mm -hmm. some the, for the purpose of research so he, he does learn all about that Lot of corn. It's so scary that those ad gag laws where you can't, like, it's just like hidden behind a, like, legislation to prevent you from seeing where your food comes from. Oh, like, yeah, it's super messed up. Scary. Um, let's see. Yeah, so from the corn, he'll go into uh, monoculture farming. You know, one, I'll give you a couple. I'm just going to kind of go through the overview and a couple of random facts I absorbed uh, for every, what is it? For every hundred feet, no, I think it's for every hundred square feet of soil, 200 pounds of fertilizer is dumped on it. Jeez. I think that's what it was. 10 square feet, 100, something like that. Either way, it says it's double what is recommended to use because they just said they figure why not. 
yeah. and the downstream effects of that is dramatic. And that's like the big, my big insult with people that think they're on higher moral plane because they don't eat meat. Monoculture farming, quote, literally and physically, the downstream effects are terrible, <clears throat> yeah. like really, really terrible. Not to mention the loss of habitat and, and all this other stuff. Ecological well, impacts is just massive. Especially people who... Overgeneralization of people who don't eat meat, a lot of them don't eat vegetables either. Yeah, They're true. eating mostly corn. True. So you're, 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 you're <laughs> yeah. really playing into this like yeah. monocultural well, farming. Vegetable, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, but they're eating corn products that are, or soy products even, which are arguably just yeah, just, just as bad, as bad yeah. or worse you know it's like the over processing i'm sure you'll get into that in here but yeah yeah so, it's so gen like pollen just focused on corn but it seems like it, they like go back and forth between coin corn and soy yeah i think soy offers some stuff that corn can't like protein mm -hmm. i say use it for like fake proteins and stuff um another f good fact i picked up in this part uh Basically, there was a discovery, I think, in the early, something like 1910 or 1890, 19, somewhere around those that area, um, that it, they were leading up to this. Like, people were trying to figure out what they could use for fertilizer, what it was, early chemists, you know. And then this guy, Fritz Haber, he was the one that discovered that it's NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, that those three things are all a plant really needs. Like. Mm -hmm. The soil can virtually be dead of all microbial life or minerals. You just need water, sunlight, and NPK, and you will get it to grow. Mm -hmm. And then he developed a process using readily available things to create this NPK for cost-effective, uh, at a cost-effective, jeez, what am I saying? He created a cost-effective way to create this. Mm. Uh, also, but also NPK fertilizer, NPK is also utilized in making explosives. So oh, it was like good. a dual purpose. Yeah. And you would think Fritz Haber would be, like, world-renowned. And he actually, in fact, did win a Nobel Prize for that discovery. Mm -hmm. He's, like, basically the father of, you know, modern fertilizer, and which allowed agriculture to go expand to the, to the scale it is now and, you know, fed so many people, right? Didn't he also create Zyklon B or something? Yeah, that's what it is. He invented <laughs> Zyklon B, so no one remembers him because he... So. <laughs> he, yeah, I think he. Well, he was forced to make it. He made. Well, he made it was him and someone else that made yeah. it. The other guy that made it took the fall for the most part, and he was executed after the war. Well, because he invented Zyklon A, which has uh, a smell to it. Yeah. Correct. And yeah. then the or whoever got a hold of him forced him to create Zyklon B, which yeah, was odorless. Pesticide, yeah. yeah. Um, moving along, we'll talk. He brings up Earl Butts. We talked about him earlier, the Secretary That's of Agriculture. Such a funny name. Uh, he really throws that guy under the bus real hard. Uh, the KFC ad that he mentions that he thinks says is the turning point in American eating is there's a KFC ad that said uh, women's liberation on it, mm. essentially saying, you know, we got it covered for your mom. Yeah. Other things he mentioned was that you know, these companies have been trying to find ways to sell you these processed products because they're easier, they have longer shelf life. Mm -hmm. Anything that lasts in your shelf for a month you shouldn't eat. Yeah, moms used to uh, not be into that stuff because they had pride in what they did. Uh, I'm not saying moms don't have pride in what they do now. It's just different. So along this process trying to figure it out, they learned that if they had, they had like, just pour-in-the-water cake mix, they could do it. Moms, mm -hmm. they tested it. Moms didn't like it. But if they made it so you cracked an egg into it, it gave you enough of the illusion that you're doing the cooking. Huh. So that's why you make it cake or brownies. It's like you crack an egg and you do like a you know, tablespoon of oil or something. Yeah. Know? 
that they did they like systematically did research to figure out what people were willing to do and how they could sell it to him. Yeah. Like it's and he he paints it like almost like a conspiracy theory, and then um, later on when he gets into like FDA stuff, it sounds even more like a conspiracy yeah. theory. And finally, he ends that chapter with him and his family eating a McDonald's meal in their car. Yeah. Uh, might be a LeBaron. I'm not sure. <laughs> but he says he makes this analogy. They could figure out how much corn is in the stuff through the research they did. So he's saying there, there are three meals of corn. They equate it to having a whole trunk full of corn. Yeah. You know, it's a clever analogy. Yeah, so we just finished up with that trunk analogy. So, but yeah, that first section of the book is long. It's great. It's pretty cool. Uh, I think he's as, as um, objective as you could possibly be about it. And then we move on to the next section. He, and he says in this section how he, he didn't realize until getting into it that this had to be two separate meals. Because as if you read it, you know, it's really uh, mind-blowing in terms of what, you know, what the public perception of organic is and what organic actually is. Mm-hmm. And I will say organic is almost certainly better than conventional. And there's a website. Hold on. It's... Um, it's like they call it the it's like the dirty dozen and the clean 15 hmm. it's really expensive and you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that certification of organic too um let's see. your farm has to be like void of any uh pesticides they deem unacceptable for something like 15 uh, years or something like that so produce retailer is a website and every year they release their dirty dozen and their clean 15 which are essentially, you know, if you're on a budget, there are a couple of foods where the process, the uh, pesticides and herbicides, uh, in a non-organic font, in a non-organic way, that they just need less. They're less likely to have a residue, so you can get away with buying them non-organic. It's not that mm-hmm. big a deal. Then there are certain ones that are they're so bad, like you absolutely should buy them uh, organic. Hmm. And th- those are usually plants that are particularly susceptible to pests so they have to really go in on them so the 2018 dirty dozen is uh so this means you should avoid these as non-organics yeah uh all right so dirty dozen are strawberries spinach nectarines apples grapes peaches cherries pears tomatoes celery potatoes and sweet bell peppers right those first two were the ones that I was thinking too, like yeah. leafy greens that are like, you know, real susceptible to bugs or whatever. That's yeah, potatoes so, are an interesting one though. Well, I'm sure it would depend on the potato and a lot of factors. Yeah, but, there's a lot of kinds of potatoes. And they do this every year, so it could be a matter of processing and, and what yeah. they're using and everything. Um, so the clean fifteen, uh, that are the, the, these are the least they have the least likelihood of. Giving pests or needing uh, containing more pesticide. a pesticide pest, pesticide uh, residue. I see. So it looks at a glance, it looks like a lot of stuff that are are resilient plants, or ones that have a tough outer skin or something, you know. So, avocado, mm-hmm. sweet corn. Actually, that's weird, uh, but you know, it's in that whole sheath, you know. Yeah. Pineapples, cabbage, onions, sweet peas, papaya, asparagus, mangoes, eggplants, honeydew, kiwi, cantaloupe, cauliflower, and broccoli. Hmm. It's just broccoli gets a lot of little worms. Well, I think I know bro- it depends. broccoli um, are like cool weather plants. They're mm-hmm. like fall and spring. So that, that that alone might get rid of a lot of the pest issues. Yeah. Just 
random tangent there. Um, yeah, so in Industrial Organic, he opens with this great passage where he says he could use his investigative journalist background to buy the appropriate eggs. Or, I don't know if it's eggs or milk, but he's in, he's, in, he's in Whole Foods, and he's, like, looking at the milk, and all the organic stuff have this, like, fake story, like, oh, they're raised in a stress-free environment, and they have access to 100 acres of land. And then the next milk is, like, these are raised with cows of all of their kind in a, in a limited stress environment and he's like well do i want them to have stress free or just limited stress should they have 100 acres or should, or should they have should they be all with their own kind you know and he's like in the reality is a lot of it is just like a farm but the the, the, the whole point of what he's saying is that you know you go into a whole foods and that's the example it's like it's like they use tones of brown and green and mm -hmm. they use matte finishes to give you that feel of like a farm and homeland and they're like, like over the cases is like the red like it's a barn you know they really try to sell you like this um you know agrarian pastoral thing and it's not the case it's industrial agri industrial organic is still industrial Wegmans does that a lot all of their sure. organic Wegman stuff has pictures of their their organic farm they have which really only exists to for the picture well for the picture and they they actually do supply next door so they for their restaurant their one restaurant that they supply because it's a pretty tiny farm i don't know if you've ever yeah. been out there yeah. where it, is it it's on candaqua lake okay. it's on some like probably super expensive plot mm. of land but yeah it's just to sell you that idea of like look how organic we are and <laughs> look how organic we are yeah yeah the, the analogy that pollen uses is that it looks like industrial agriculture with one arm tied tied behind its back mm. You know, essentially, they're, they're, all the FDA regulations and the politics, you know, they're trying to, they're going to use whatever they can use to maximize the profit of their product. Mm -hmm. So they will use whatever they can unless it explicitly says they can't, you know, mm -hmm. it's that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, another big thing that struck me is interesting that the, I think it was two years. You can, you can grow certified organic stuff on a, on a farm that was non-organic two years ago. Yeah. Which is, you know, scary. Yeah, all, if they're, we already knew know how much pesticide and herbicide they're dumping onto it, and it's like, uh, okay. Another interesting fact was um, there's three types of GMO, mm -hmm. and two of the three can be organic. I'll tell you the three, and then you can guess which of the two. So there is uh, selective breeding, mm -hmm. which is the initial form. Well, actually, I guess there's four kinds. So the first GMO is just selective breeding, which is, you know, it's you're just assisting nature by selectively breeding. Yeah. Obviously, that's like, organic. This tomato looks great, yeah. So the next three are, they can cross the genes from another plant into an, a different plant. Like, they can put part of a carrot in a tomato or whatever, yeah. you know. Tomaco. Yeah, tomaco. <laughs> then they can do things where they splice into different entire, like, kingdoms. Like, they can put, like, um, like... They could take stuff from, like, a rabbit and put it in a tomato. Like, they, they could do, you know, yeah. that's another one. And then the third version of genetic modification is where they expose a seed to radioactivity. Hmm. And then they grow it, and they see what type, type of mutations they get. And if they like the mutation, they go, all right. And then they take it, and, they, and they'll either so crazy. then take it, the, unlock the genome, or selectively breed it. So those are the three. Which two do you think can be certified organic? Well, the first one. Well, yeah, I'm saying that. I gave you four the, of the second three. What oh, the second three? So just tell me which one you think can't. Uh, the radioactive one. Wrong. I was about to go back on it because I'm Wrong. assuming that the... 
once it's the you are fake news um yeah i mean that kind of makes sense but it's scary yeah you're not you're, you are allowed to splice from one plant into another plant but not out of the king out of, into different okay. like kingdom or phylum or whatever it is like because in yeah obviously there can be organic honeycrisp and honeycrisp is a, is a gmo it was yeah. made it was genetically modified to have additional water within its cells. That's why it crunches so nice, because mm. there's more water per cell. Fun fact. I just loaded with those today. Yeah, so organic is not exactly as, you know, growing in your backyard as you think. And in fact, if you were to grow in your backyard, they can come test your soil and be like, nope, you're not certified organic, because you don't know what's in your soil. Yeah. Uh, so a couple other things. This is really great. I'm going to actually put this info in the bio for this. Um so he kind of criticized Whole Foods. He bought this uh, asparagus. <laughs> if you follow me on the internet, you know I was really upset. I bought my out-of-season asparagus, and I did it three times before I finally was like, stop buying out-of-season asparagus, Dave. It sucks. There's no reason to have asparagus right now. It's very much out-of-season. Yeah, I had asparagus today. I figured the white stuff might be a little bit different. Um, no, so I feel like I know the answer to that. It's, never mind. Well, I'm sure uh, in a greenhouse they could probably mimic seasons. I don't know. Anyway, he, they say they, it, is in, it is, in fact, in-season asparagus. They have it flown in from Argentina. Yeah. But this starts to um, intersect with Pollen's idea that, you know, the, the fossil fuel energy used to yeah. get to your plate is all of a sudden it's like, well, then just don't eat the asparagus. So he criticizes Whole Foods, says it's kind of deceptive, says he buys the asparagus, it sucks. Yeah, you know, that's the meal at the end. It's asparagus and then maybe some farmed, I think it was some farmed organic salmon. Mm. No, no, no. It was, it's hilarious. It was Inuit caught salmon in Alaska mm. that they then shipped to China to get processed and then shipped back to the United States to the distribution center and then shipped to the local centers and then to the Whole Foods. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we, you know, Rightfully, he should have insulted Whole Foods because what they're projecting and what it is is not in, in accordance with each other, right? Yeah. So there's this great exchange between pollen and Whole Foods that happens. Uh, the CEO, my chair is falling apart. It's I got a chair at my... I'm going to bring you a chair. <laughs> yeah. I got like a nice office chair at my dad's that I don't use. I have a couple. So um, the C, the at, at the time, the CEO of Whole Foods... His name is Mike something, Mike. Do you know this? You should know this. Your, your, your bowling ball? No. Um, oh, so I'm wrong. John McKay. Or Mackey. So basically, Mackey. on the words that the dilemma comes out, people are like, yo, this makes Whole Foods look bad. CEO of Whole Foods says, Michael, Mr. Pollen, you, 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 know, you made me look kind of bad. Why don't, you, why don't you come down to our headquarters in Austin? Have you been to that Whole Foods in Austin? I think that's, that's the one right by... Uh... House Park. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first Whole Foods. Oh, really? That's like, or at least the center of Whole Foods, I, from what I understand. Hmm. I could be wrong. Fact, Someone fact check me. So they invite him there. They give him a $25 gift card for his asparagus. <laughs> and they sit down and they have, I guess they have like a nice little lunch and they talk all about stuff. And they, you know, they agree about a lot of things and everything. And it's all fine and dandy, right? Mm -hmm. Then a couple days later, that guy, Mackie, McKay, mm -hmm. whatever. On Whole Foods' website, he publishes an open letter to Michael Pollan, which goes on to really attack Pollan's, like, uh, journalism, mm. saying, you know, you shouldn't, why didn't you come talk to us, you could have done a better job, blah, 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 you know, which is 
interesting because they just like met, right? So yeah. So I'll actually, um, I'm going to link to Pollen's letter back, which from there you can find the first letter. Mm. And Pollen writes back like, you know, thanks for the $25 gift card. You know, it's written really well because he's smart, yeah. but he's like, thanks for the $25 gift card. It certainly covers the $6 that, the, the $6 that cost, it cost for my disappointing asparagus. Whatever. <laughs> so like, he's like outlining what happened, but in a way that's like making them look kind of silly. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, why would why would you criticize my journalism saying I haven't I didn't come interview you I actually had interviewed multiple people when I did other articles for other publications because he does stuff for magazines and everything and he just like lays it down he's like I'd love to say um, that you are behind the food movement and I would love nothing more than to be, to have my foot in my mouth you know mm-hmm. and be wrong he's like and I'll be waiting for the day that I am wrong but the ball is in your court you know essentially yeah because they're you know I'm the, they're they're kind of lying, you know. Yeah, why should why should he have to come to the CEO or someone yeah. at Whole Foods when he's like, I just want to find out where the food in your store comes from. Like, yeah. obviously, if he went to, maybe not obvious. Like, assuming he goes to through those channels that Whole Foods want him to, they're gonna he he's gonna see what Whole Foods wants him to yeah. see. And like I said in the beginning, organic is better than conventional most of the time. And someplace like Whole Foods is pro- is probably better than. Your generic mm-hmm. supermarket. We're just spoiled to have Wegmans here because Wegmans is like Whole Foods anyway. It's the best. Um, it is better. It's just there's a level of deception which is not okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, not not cool. <laughs> it's not cool, man. It's not cool, man. Yeah. So the, in that section, uh, it's pretty, I thought it was pretty great. I actually stumbled upon those letters later. They're not in the book, obviously, because I have mm-hmm. a day after the book. Like I said, I will link in the in the description to that letter so you could read it. I, like, skimmed it today. The letter, one letter, the first letter Whole Foods wrote to him is, like, insanely long. It's, like, it's just, like, they really, really tried to build up a firm argument and, like, quantify all these things that they do and these percentages of this and that. And it, it did make them look good. And you read it and you're, like, oh, wow, you know, they're doing a good job. And then Pollen's just, like, drops the mic on him and it's, like, oh, shit. Roasted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then the second thing Pollen realizes is that the sustainable farm is really what people think organics are mm. but it's not it's industrial yeah industrial organic although there are like yes like wegmans does source some of their stuff locally because they mm-hmm. have some local farms you know and they're probably better than the local farms that say maybe walmart buys their stuff from mm-hmm. well so i i wanted to say this through the podcast but i think people just going to a farm and understanding where their food comes from is a really good way of like mm-hmm. underlining all of oh, this yeah. stuff. Um, when I worked at Good Luck, we uh, sourced from a couple different farms, and one of the main farms was a farm called Firefly Farms. And they, I don't know if they're certified organic, but they certainly practice organic yeah, yeah. practices, probably to a higher level than organic farms are required to. Yeah, yeah. And we would go and just see what they did every day and saw where all of our produce came from. And when you do that, it makes it a whole lot harder to throw out your vegetables or mm-hmm. whatever food you, you know like it, it, when you when you know exactly where it came from you, you know especially in a restaurant environment where we're trying to you know make ends meet by using every little bit of everything in addition mm-hmm. to just knowing where it came from you can look at a cook and be like remember when we were at the farm and you saw you saw Sharon like in the dirt picking that out you're really just going to waste that you're going to mess that up mm-hmm. like it's it it just kind of brings it all brings it all home. You bring the food in the back door with a hand truck. 
I usually just carried it. No, I, thought, I thought maybe you had to use some ramps to get it in. No, we usually, we get, it's almost ramp season. Ramp, do you know, you know ramps, Ramps right? are like chives or something? Yeah, they're like uh, hipster garlic. Hipster that, garlic. That only I, comes around. I like that. Yeah, they're the best. They're so good. <laughs> they only grow, it's one of those vegetables that no one's figured out how to grow at a commercial scale, mm. at least not in a good way. So they only come around in spring. They're only foraged. And since they become much more mainstream and popular, people are foraging way more than they should where you oh, should leave yeah, some yeah. and they're starting to become which mm. i think is what's going to happen is they're going to become more rare and people are going to be like well i'm not going to do ramps this year because everyone's overdoing it and then mm. we're going to have a couple of years of no ramps and then it'll get mm. popular again just like bmx yeah it's exactly it's, it's the exact same words <laughs> I, will, I will quote one of my favorite chefs uh blaze rosati if there's not garlic in it it's not food <laughs> yeah i said that the other day <laughs> Uh, so the sustainable farm uh, pond goes to is Polyface Farms, where mm-hmm. I went this summer, which place is awesome. Joel Salatin, the uh, owner of the farm, has revolutionized modern farming. Our our beef farm, their Good Luck's beef farm, uh, that actually a bunch of restaurants in Rochester source from because of Headwater, um, does the same practices it's that you're about to talk about. It's really cool. We got to tour that one, too. I wouldn't. I don't even want to get too far into it because it's just so freaking cool what they do. Yeah. He's like a, Paula in the book says, you know, I think it's his first day on the farm because he basically gets to do, um, he volunteers to work on the farm for like two weeks or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, I think Polyface has this thing on their website now. It's like, you can't do what Michael Pollan did. You're not allowed to. Like, because people kept wanting to do what Michael Pollan did and volunteer on the farm or whatever. Yeah. It's like, okay, whatever. So they're like, <laughs> this part, their website's really blunt. Everything's really blunt. They have an open... Um, open borders like farm like you can just go onto the farm at any time 24 hours a day just hang out and you could just like walk on and walk they don't care it's just it's all yeah. good just don't mess with anything you know and respect the houses because they all live on the property which is just incredible but yeah the first day on the farm joel has pollen lay face down in the grass because he, he asked him he's like what do you think like what are you he's like i'm a grass farmer and he's laying down in the grass and he's picking all the different strands and he goes, this is that this is this this is this blah blah and how basically the farm is designed to mimic nature. Mm-hmm. So the herds move, the birds follow the her- the herd. So it's like they use modern technology like fiber optic electric fence to have the farm constantly the moving around. Yeah. So it's not, they're, they're, the plot of land that they have when they bought, they were told it was unfarmable. Mm-hmm. Their yield on their farm is greater percent per acre than industrial farms mm-hmm. because it's constantly moving mm-hmm. so they're they're getting to do so much more with it and they have a net soil gain every year on the farm they are con the way they are now farming makes the grant the ground the soil better, better every year yeah. than depleting it into the dead soil we'll have in it in monoculture farming in the in the you know the corn belt of america the bread basket yeah used to be the bread basket now it's the cornhole. <laughs> it was uh, so cool when we went because um, the, the, they were tilling a new uh, plot of land, and they started doing that by just letting the pigs roam free because they just, yeah, yeah. like, they decimate everything. So, like, if you have, like, you know, a bunch of brush and trees and stuff, pigs are just going to knock it all over yeah. and um, pollen, till the land. Not pollen. Salatin goes on tours doing talks where he... One of the things he does, it's like a marketing thing. Like, mm-hmm. you want to clear a plot of land? Well, give yourself six months to a year. 
run a hose down the middle, get seven pigs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a pig per acre ratio. Let them do their thing, and then when they're done, you could sell the pig off to a butcher or something, yeah, and then exactly the pig gets to do more of a pig thing than most pigs. Someone gets some really good bacon, and then you have cleared property to sell or to develop on. He also it. goes into the middle, mid east, middle east, or anywhere that, like America's actively trying to. The big companies, the corporatism of the companies are trying, like the GMO companies, mm -hmm. and, and was Monsanto. They're Bayer now. They're going into other parts of the world. And being like, oh, this is how you farm. You need to buy our seeds. You need to yeah. buy our equipment. And he tries to go around and to fight that by yeah. showing his version of, of farming. Wait, did uh, Monsanto change their name? Yeah, they got bought out by Bayer. Like the the aspirin company? Mm -hmm. That's terrifying. The German company Bayer that was owned by Nazis. Oh. Like NASA, shadow government. <laughs> yeah, Bayer owns... owns. Yeah, it looked like a political move, Uh Santos name was getting th drugged through the dirt, rightfully so, mm -hmm. and uh, so now they're now they're Bayer Corp. So it kind of like kind of pushes uh -huh. dust to push uh, sweeps the dust under the carpet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not good. They just lost that crazy lawsuit to that guy, um, a groundskeeper at a high school or college. I think it was high school was using the ra Roundup. Everyone knows Roundup. Yeah, Roundup. That's what they use for all their stuff for corn and everything. Yeah. He's using Roundup on the fields, and he developed cancer. I forget which cancer it was, uh, and it went to trial, and, the, and they won. Wow! So they proved, without a shadow of a doubt, that the the Roundup that he was using on the fields every day of his life yeah. gave him cancer. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to Google it real quick, see if I can yeah. find the guy's name. So the guy, the jury awarded this gentleman two hundred and eighty nine million dollars. Which is like a drop in the bucket for Monsanto oh, for yeah. Bear Corp. But uh, hope this video doesn't. And Doug. These freaking ads, <laughs> the ads are getting me. Uh, yeah. Put an ad blocker on it. It's in, the best thing uh, ever. In damage, da yeah, two hundred eighty-nine million in damages. Dwayne Johnson. His name is Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne the Rock. He's he has the same name as the Rock. <laughs> the Rock beat Monsanto. <laughs> Amazing. He got um, rock beat seed. He got uh, <laughs> the, he. The argument was that the, the herbicide caused his non non Hodgkin's lymphoma. I've seen pictures of the guy. He looked pretty rough. Oof. Now there are more than eight hundred patients suing Monsanto right now, say, saying Roundup gave them cancer. Great. Yeah. I mean, great that they're getting. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, that it's. I and it's crazy that this this is. Holy crap! Look at the guy's hand. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty gross. That's scary. It's no good, man. Oh, he had an accident in which he ended up being soaked with the product. Oh. Either way, but that that's absolutely terrifying. <sighs> he says he used it 20 to 30 times per year and then had two accidents where it got spilled on him. But yeah, it's terrifying. Because this is in everyone's garage. Like, everyone has ground up. Yeah. It's really crazy. I watched the thing. Bayer is now trying to counter Sue, saying it wasn't clear enough, and they're saying that they've done all their own research, and it's not true. But um, if you've looked into any of this stuff, like, they're paying massive amounts of money to scientists to come up with the, you know, hey, do a study that finds that our cancer, uh, I mean, our <laughs> stuff doesn't ca cancer ca cause cancer. The cancer doesn't cause, I mean, make it make us look good. Yeah. How much money do you need? <laughs> 
essentially, you know. Well, that's a shame in that. he's That dude's probably going to spend the rest of his life and half the money he won in that lawsuit just fighting oh, Monsanto yeah. again. Yeah, but this is, I you if you haven't seen, the only time I ever see normal TV is at the bar. Mm-hmm. And there is one of those, you know, have you, blah, 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 blah. There's yeah. a Monsanto, like, lawsuit yeah, oh, yeah. hotline now. So, but now it's Bayer. Yeah. Fuck I hope Bayer. that dude bought a Ferrari or something cool with all that money. So he can drive to his terrible lawsuit with his cancer. Like, yeah, right. Please. <laughs> there's been some documentary. There's a documentary done about it. I can't remember what it was called. I watched it. It's pretty. It makes him look really, really bad. Whatever. Um, yeah, Polypace Farms is really cool. Everything's movable. Everything's great. They're awesome. You should check it out. You should look them up. They have plenty of content on the web. Joel Salatin's been in... Uh, he was in King Corn. He might have been in Food Inc. as well. They go into... You know... He also writes children's books, like, he hates, like, bureaucrats and all that crap. And he talks about how um, the restrictions from the USDA, along with the FDA, make it so hard for them to be organic and even hard for them to even sell their product. They, they slaughter their chickens in an open-air facility. They mm-hmm. use it as an assembly line program with, like, six people. Chickens come in, they drop them in a thing, yeah. the throat, they hit a defleatherer. They go right down the line, and at the last step of the process, they wrap it and they hand it to the consumer. Hmm. And you're like I said, everyone's allowed to go on the farm. You can go there on Sunday mornings for the, for the, when the chi- when the chickens are getting done, and mm-hmm. you can like get it right there. That's crazy. But the FDA is like, you know, it's open air, so you know, there's germs in the air Not and all organic. this stuff. You know, yeah. you can't. They want uh, any slaughtering facility to be all stainless steel, and that's super expensive. I've been in one of those. Yeah. It's it's industrial to be inside of a um, commercial slaughterhouse, yeah. and they have you have to pay an FDA agent to be there to yeah. stamp all the cows and all the, the pork and everything. Yeah, it's like, and, he, and they argue that the le- that sort of legislation, regulation, is caused by the big companies trying to keep the small farmer out of it. Trying For to, sure. Yeah. The polyphases, they won't even ship food more than 100 miles away. They will they supply local restaurants. Anyone mm-hmm. can come and get it, but they won't ship it. Pollen says when he, when he first reached out to him, he wanted him to mail him a steak. Yeah. And he was just like, nah. He's like, nah, dude. He's like, you want it, you gotta come and get it. And where are they again? They're in They're in Swope Valley, Virginia. Hmm. In the Swope Valley in no, it's it, they're in Swope, which is in the Shenandoah. Shenandoah. I don't know. Shenandoah. Valley. Uh it's outside of Charlottesville. Mm. It's not it was about an hour less than an hour from uh, Monticello. That's where I went the following hmm. day. Highly recommend that. Moving along. Actually, we, when I was there, I got their bacon and all kinds of stuff. It was dope. They had some of that. It's really good. Uh, the last section of the book, which, what, what do you call it? Pastel, uh, forest? forest? I remember forest. this time. Yeah, forest. Is um, basically hunter-gatherer. So in this se- section of the book, he brings in... The cultural element is he brings in people in particular domains to help teach him what they need to know. Mm-hmm. So he does... Uh, he forages for mushrooms. He, well, he gardens on his own, so he does gardening. He does uh, some bread, and he hunts a pig, which is all pretty dope. Mm. In the for, and first he goes, he does a little research on his own. He goes foraging for mushrooms, and like his background, he wrote the botany desire and all that stuff. And he's like, he thought he, he thought he found what he what he had, and he in fact he brought them home. I think he even cooked them, and then he was like. That's so good. That's a scary thing. Exactly. I've worked with a lot of mushrooms, and there's, I actually did forage some at um, 
my uncle's Well, so there's anything I learned in that book, it's like you don't tell people where you forage for mushrooms, so. What? What do you mean? Oh. Both, both in this book and in How to Change Your Mind when he forages for psilocybin mushrooms with, with um, Paul Stamets, it's like, yeah. they're like, there's no BS. Like, it ain't, it's like a hunting spot, a fishing spot, mushroom spots. You don't tell people yeah. where you forage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like super secret spots. I um, saw one of my customers at Old Pueblo the other day. Yeah. She hasn't come in in a while. But she helped a little bit when we opened the park. And somehow we were talking about mushrooms, and I was like, I was saying hi, mountain bike in Seneca Park. And she's like, oh, I, I forage for mushrooms. That... And I was like, it's fine. I know how mushroom people are. I don't really eat mushrooms, and I'm not going to do it. And she's like, yeah, well, I would never tell you or anyone my spot. And I was like, okay. Yeah, man, people, you can make a lot of money around springtime when all the chanterelles and morels come yeah. up. You could, you know. People buy those for... It was either... It was one of those two he was looking for, and one of them has, like, there's a mimic one that looks just like it, but it's poisonous. It's uh, chanterelles. Mm. They're very... They're, they look a lot like, I think it's lobster mushrooms, and those are... I don't think they'll kill you, but they will do some weird damage. Morels are a little easier. Those are pretty, uh, um, pretty identifiable. The ones I found at my uncle's golf course were a chicken of the woods, yeah, those are crazy looking ones. Yeah, they'd like grow up the side of a tree and they're, they're really cool. I was, uh, they weren't the best ones, but our mushroom guy, Craig, I think Little Sprout Farms, mm. um, I was like, hey, if I eat these, am I going to die? He's like, no, there's pretty much no um, lookalikes for those ones. You, you can go nuts on those. So it's pretty cool. I'm looking at chanterelle. So the, the, the jack o' lantern pumpkin is the one that looks like a chanterelle. Mm. Uh, I. Oh, wow, and even chanterelles vary a little bit in their look. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and those aren't cheap. I think we we would buy those for, like, something like $20 a pound. Oh! You know, they're not, and morels are even more. Hmm. Right, let's keep moving. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're, long it's a long one. one. Yeah, um, yeah, then he uh, obviously gardens himself. Uh, the bread thing is really interesting. I didn't know so much about bread. Uh, you talk about how these bakers have these starters, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's like their prized possession. He said there's a, a spot in L.A. or San Francisco that's like a kennel for your starters. When you go on vacation, you can give yep. them... Or they'll said, feed, they'll said, feed your starter. Yeah. He says a lot of them bring their starters on vacation with them and everything. When I worked at the bakery, um, when we had our week off, everyone took a piece of the starter <laughs> and fed it on their own so there's less chance of losing it. Mm. So everyone took a little part. And yeah. I think they froze one just because it's so vital to have your wow. starter going. What exactly is a starter? It's just, I, I don't actually it's know that how to... It's particular strain of yeast or whatever. Yeah, it's like, it's a naturally occurring yeast. So if you, yeah. I mean, I think most people just get their starter from someone else mm. and go off of that. I don't know exactly how you start a starter. But the funny thing in this book is whenever Pollen was talking with his baker friend, mm -hmm. he would always make sure he like shook his hand like twice, like once on the, like every time he can make any sort of skin contact, he's just trying to pick up the microbial life <laughs> on his hand, hoping he could like bring it back home with him. <laughs> That's so funny. Because whatever, but, yeah. Yeah. So you just it's just flour and water and letting it ferment and letting yeah. it grab the natural yeast in the air. Um, it's so like at the at the restaurant I work at now. We do naturally leavened pizza, mm -hmm. so um, every day we feed the starter. We just give it more flour and water, and it does its thing. The other day it blew up because mm -hmm. it was it, it's in a container with a lid on it, and I guess when the morning guy came in, it had literally exploded and like sprayed the whole kitchen with starter. Wow! Because there's so much pressure and so much mm -hmm. stuff in there. Like I've I've made pizza doughs that I mixed too warm, so they overworked. 
and it looked like it crawled out of the bin, like the pizza dough I made, crawled out of the bin, crawled up of another thing just because it, it grows so much. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Dude. Yeah. It's not. Dough's a whole other thing. Yeah, when he makes his bread in that section of the book, he just does a starter and leaves it out on, on the windowsill mm-hmm. and just lets it be what it would be. Exactly. Which is crazy. I never knew that. Yeah. That's how, and that's that's the thing with um, people who are um, celiac or gluten intolerant um, can generally eat sourdough bread because the way that the starter works and the fermentation process, it breaks down some of those mm. proteins or whatever whatever it is that uh, celiacs can't ingest or yeah, handle. So, yeah, sourdough's great. I bet. Uh, after the bread, he does the pig hunt, which I think is my favorite part of the book. Pollen is a vegetarian. And generally, I think sometimes he might lean a little too far that way. I think mm. he does. He's still a vegetarian? Yeah. Oh. He does talk about, there, there's been a lot of criticisms of, Pol- of Pollen, and I've read a lot of them, and most of them are like, meh. I mean, if I would make anything, I think he downplays the value of animal products. Mm-hmm. But he did defend milk in one of the lectures, so that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so in the pig hunt, he, he eats meat for the book, for the sake of the book. So mm-hmm. he's not that, like, ideologically tied to it. So he's more about philosophy, right? That's mm-hmm. the analogy we always there use. There you go. So, yeah, so him going in the pig hunt, he never hunted anything before, you know. So he, 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 he runs you through the whole thing in his head about, like, learning to shoot the gun and then learning how to, you know, go out in the hunt. And he's just like, I don't know if I can do this, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. then they don't, I don't think they, I think they spot one one or two pigs, and they never even fire a shot. And so then, then he's, like, leaving, and he's like, I was all mad. I, I, went, I showed up being like, I don't know if I could do it. And then I saw it and never had an opportunity to shoot. So now I'm like, the pig beat, the pig won. Like, this yeah. primal, like, hunter thing. Hunter comes out in him. And the next time, he's like, he seems so hyper-focused on the hunt mm-hmm. and just, like, in the zone. And then they finally, they spot one, and, like, he, he, he takes the shot, and, you know, he gets it, but... He says the other guy shoots the same pig at the same time, and then just like, oh yeah, perfect shot. But he he says that he thinks the other guy actually killed it, and just like uh, like, like patted him on the shoulder, like, good job, Mister Pollen, got him, you know. But then you know he takes a picture with the hog he shot, and to let any of you animal sensitive people know, there is a big hog issue in California. Yeah, the wild hogs bred with the domesticated pigs and made this like feral pig. That's actually a major problem. Yeah. So hunting in a lot of places, they it's a big problem. Feral pigs, and like we said earlier, they decimate everything around them. They Mm -hmm. don't really care. They just yeah, they're like juggernauts. Those things. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, and he gets the pig. Gets a picture with the pig. He's all happy about the pig. You know, then they yeah they dress the pig, which is a funny term for dismembering it. Yeah. And then later, he reflects on it, and this is the great part because he's like, he's looking at the picture of himself all happy with this poor dead animal and he's like reflecting on how he got so in that like tunnel vision of the hunt and like he's like, he's like I don't even know the person I was and mm-hmm. it's, like, it's hard to even imagine it like because it's I, like I feel so bad. look at me smiling with this dead animal it's like I thought the philosophy and the psychology of all that was like really really fascinating and it, it came from out of nowhere you never expected it in that book to go there yeah yeah it's especially awesome. to be so introspective about something so powerful yeah. like that in a food book <laughs> and then in the end they eat a meal with him and his wife and his son and all the good people that helped him which i should have researched those names so i could have told you them but once i got to the actual sections of the book i stopped outlining i just wrote a couple of words because mm-hmm. i knew it so well mm-hmm. and then he closes he segues from that into the closing about the importance of the sit-down meal 
how important it is to sit down with your family and how it's so, you know, mom is just another word for uh, culture, as I adopted that saying as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's generally the Odd Lord's Dilemma. It's a fantastic book. Everyone should read it. I'm definitely going to pick it up when I get home. I'm actually going to read yeah. it now. <laughs> it's great, dude. And then uh, I was going to go into the roughly on the second book right here on the pile in defense of food. But generally, that just goes into the implications of eating. It's more data-filled, data but it's kind of dry. Mm. Like, generally, I like I like Cresser's writing because this is, like, it's just charts. Like, yeah. this book is just information. Here's a chart to back it up. Here's a story that, you know, an a anecdotal story that backs it up, too. Mm. That's how I like to work. Down the Dilemma was a really nice walk between the two. In defense of food, there's, doesn't, there wasn't really a whole narrative to it. Mm -hmm. So, like, Pollen, as, as a writer, his background's in English, his degree's in English. It's, that book should be more like this, but it's kind of not. But what I tell people is you, it'd be hard to read In Defense of Food had you not already read On the Worst Dilemma. Yeah. And On the Worst Dilemma, when you finish reading it, you know why everyone was asking him to write this book, In yeah. Defense of Food, because it, it, it goes through the implications and even that one's not really telling you exactly what to eat as much as telling you what are the implications. What does the research say? What is, you know, it goes into, um, they call it, what's the term he uses? Like nutritionism? I think it says nutritionism, which is like this thing where we keep taking one nutrient and putting it on a pedestal and then taking another one and being like, oh, you're the bad guy now. Like, mm -hmm. oh, carbs are bad. Oh, sugar is bad. Oh, this, oh, antioxidants are good. Oh, yeah. like. That he talks about that and the kind of like the, the philosophy and psychology of that, so that's pretty good. But on the words of is the go to to read. Absolutely, great book. I'd read it again if I wasn't in the middle of four other books right now and I don't have enough time to read ever. Biking season's coming, so I'll have plenty of time to read my audiobooks, listen to my audiobooks. Yeah, sweet. That great one. synopsis of the book. Yeah, hopefully that's enough to keep you enticed and to help you to stay. Cause it's hard to stay motivated to read. I think laying a nice little like foundation of what the book is like will keep people like, oh, I want to get to that part. Like you, mm -hmm. I kind of know what's coming, and yeah, everyone should read it. If I ever had any consultation with someone, I'd be like, Have you read that? Read it first, because mm -hmm. it really gives you that idea of food in a global sense. Like people think it's like, oh, I want to have some Terrell. They just pick the Coke up and they think the, they think like the Coke just like, what's like the Star Trek thing where it just like vaporizes yeah. the place or whatever? Like the food just appears there and that's it. They don't know that like... The whole process behind it getting there. There's one story in here where Pollen says he's at McDonald's with his son and it was in, I don't know what year, early 2000s and they just reformulated their chicken nuggets mm -hmm. and they were, he was like, he asked, he didn't eat meat but his kid did and he said, he's like, oh, is it a... It tastes more like chicken. He says, kid looked at him all puzzled. I think he said, kid, the kid was maybe 11. And yeah. he goes, it's like, no, it tastes more like a nugget. <laughs> like, he didn't actually know that, like, it was from a chicken, like an animal, you yeah. know? And, and that's what the industrial food, industrial food, uh, the food industry does, is they try to dissect the, you know, the, the objectivity of what the food is, mm -hmm. you know? They don't want you to know that it, doesn't, it was an animal that bled or it's a farm that is as far as the eye can see. They don't, they just want you to, like, see just that you know that's why they yeah there's a lot of sketchy shit with that so sketchy stuff with that yeah so we're gonna i'm gonna that'll be it here for today 
Our longest one yet. Great one, though. I thought this one would be shorter because the outline was... The last outline was like five pages. This outline's only like three pages. Yeah. But it's also stuff I know about, so I can yeah, interject yeah. a lot and Maybe more. that's what it was. Yeah. So, I actually wrote down a little closing outline just so I actually... Because I always get to the end and I'm so like... I've gone through the motions of the mm -hmm. podcast. I like, I'm like, what am I supposed to say? I'm just do this, but yeah. Here's, this is the closing. Um, this is Rinse Life with a Y. Because <laughs> there's nothing as valuable as feeling good. A couple things to touch on before we go. We could, I don't know if I mentioned it before. We could do an Ask Wrench thing. If you want to ask me a question about something, mm. I, I could do some research about a specific thing. Especially if sometimes the podcasts are shorter, help fill some time. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just very specific to a specific situation. Like, how can I get this into my diet if I don't? want to do that or something like that and i'll say well easy answer stop being a bitch <laughs> no um but yeah, if you got a question feel free to comment it or email it either way i'm here for you uh next thing we need a hundred subscribers on youtube before we can get a custom url so mm. we can't be youtube.com slash wrench life until we have a hundred subscribers i think we have four sweet so if you're if you happen if you're one of the six people let's upgrade if you're one of the seven people that listen to this podcast, just subscribe to us on YouTube and help help us get to that point because that'll really help sp spread the message. Uh, same thing, a review in iTunes gets us to the point where we are it'll show our re review publicly. So I looked it up the other day. It, it comes up if you search like it'll auto correct to Wrench Life. I don't know if right. that's just because of my phone, but. Yeah, it'll but it'll it it won't it'll say there hasn't been enough reviews to give a public review. Ah, uh, I love it. So yeah, if you give a shit about us and what we're doing, you know, even if you don't use YouTube, log on and give us a subscribe to help yeah, us get there. Yeah, if you have a Gmail account, you just click on YouTube and then you yeah. have a YouTube account, so it's pretty easy. Uh, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> feel free to share this if you want to share it with anyone. Uh, if I give us a, some a review on iTunes, will help us get a review, which will also pump the likelihood of other people trying to see it because of the way that all the algorithms look. Um, if you really, really care, uh, you can go to wrenchlife.com slash donate and you can donate to the podcast. I was going to do that, um, what's it called, buy me a coffee. It's another one of those things that oh, yeah. like creators use. It'll be like, it's like a button on the website. You click it and you can send up like $2 or $3. Mm -hmm. But you need a, uh, a Stripe account to do it. So Stripe. they had to make a, it's a, a processor, a credit card mm -hmm. processor. So I was like, I'm not going to make a buy me a coffee login and everything and a Stripe login and everything just because I think it'll make you whatever. Yeah. If you want to buy us a coffee, you know I'm drinking that Peruvian. I drank it. It's good stuff. You can do that, wrenchlife.com slash donate. Also, it, the end goal for me is to get into health coaching and consultation. If you you know if you know want some consultation, if you want to talk to me about your specifics, you know, I, I'm... I want to get to the point where I can help people work individually toward goals. I, I'm very critical and analytical. You, 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 you know, you could tell me where you're at, and I'd love to look through that and, and think of log logical steps and su make suggestions, suggest them to you, so we can collectively come up with a you know a step by step program to get your you know to wrench your life a little bit, right? Yeah. That's the end goal here. I like the podcast because it'll help. It'll reach more people. But I want to work with specifics as well. I also spelled asparagus wrong. Asparagus. That's a tough one, dude. I'm tough. I'm horrible with spelling and words because I'm dyslexic and whatever. But Same. That's it for today. 
What's our Michael Pollan food rule for the day? Oh yeah, we gotta sign off with the food rule. Can't skip that on the most the Michael Polliniest yeah. days. This one's gonna seem like we're obsessing with pollen now, but as a, as always, we're going to read a food rule. To read a food rule. What was the last one? Oh, the grandmother rule. That's yeah. a great rule. I like that rule. <clears throat> oh, that's a good one. Rule number three. Avoid food products containing ingredients that no ordinary human would keep in their pantry. Done. Great. He's, and he suggests extylated diglycerides, mm-hmm. cellulose, xanthan gum. I actually use xanthan gum. Not in my home kitchen. Calcium. Restaurants. Propyrinate. Aluminum phosphate. Yeah. There you go. That's a great rule. You know how it is. This is wrench life. Get out there. Turn that wrench a little bit. Feel a little better tomorrow than you felt like today. Wrench life. You should have a wrench on the table. Just get a good wrench. There's nothing. Big piping wrenches. As valuable. It's feeling good. Great. Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. Great. Awesome. Cool. Great. Oh.